Hey, uh, I'm glad to be uh, with you this morning. My name's Kenan Vaughn. I've got the privilege of being one of the pastors and elders here and uh, preaching this morning. We'll be in our series in Titus in just a moment. Uh, the last um, few weeks, we have kind of taken a pause here in chapter 2. And uh, we had a, an overview a few weeks ago of um, this passage, verses 1 through 6. And then we've been taking a little deeper dive. And uh, two weeks ago, we looked at uh, the women specifically, uh, older women and younger women, older women getting four qualities that really uh, help us to understand what mature biblical womanhood looks like, what God designed a woman to be and, and what maturity looks like, what characteristics display maturity in that, and, uh, and then what they're to pass on to the younger women, seven more characteristics. So it was kind of 11 characteristics there that we get an idea of who a woman is as designed by God to reflect his glory as an image bearer and uh, what it means uniquely to be woman and, and what does that look like for your role. And then last week we talked about the older men who uh, get six characteristics that I believe displays maturity in the different context in which they're called to be a man. And we looked at the context coming right out of Genesis in the garden. Uh, man is a husband, as a father, as a worker, and a steward, and a disciple or follower and lover of God and, and disciple maker. And, um, and, and it's, uh, it's this great picture of what the wisdom of God looks like when it's pursued um, uh, in a way that uh, brings forth maturity and it's life-giving, not only in a person's life, but to those around them. And uh, my prayer is that we would be uh, kind of reoriented in, to what even the target of manhood and womanhood is. Prof. Hendricks should tell me if you don't have the right target, then uh, even if you hit the bullseye, uh, it doesn't matter. And so uh, the culture is inundating us with messages of what manhood or womanhood are that are almost always at some level faulty, sometimes altogether wrong and evil and upside down. And so I want us to go back to the Word of God. What, you know, God created man and woman in His image uh, to, to bear and represent His glory as vice regents over this earth. And what does it look like to do it well? So let's let God define that for us. His standard never changes. The Word never changes. And so that's why we're slowing down here because the culture is so wishy-washy and gray and wrong when it comes to these areas, and we want to look again at what the Bible says, what the Word of God says. And so this week, we're turning our attention to the young men, okay? So I'm proud of you young fellows just for showing up this morning. Uh, this may get bumpy at times. Um, so the young men, biblically, that would be anywhere from uh, 18, kind of manhood, to 59, okay? So... Some of you men are already winners this morning uh, by virtue of being called a young man for the first time in a long time. But biblically, it's the idea of being in the child-bearing and child-rearing years of your life. It's just kind of the, the generality we have there, even if some of you were finished with that before 60 or after 60. Generally, we see that's kind of a mark there um, for uh, what we mean by young men and then moving towards the older men. Again, older men we talked about last week, it, it's not that they wait until they're old, certainly that'd be impossible to become mature in those areas. It's that they live in such a way when they're younger men that by the time they're older men, their lives display a certain Christ-like character uh, as, uh, as explained in those concepts we got that they're supposed to be um, uh, dignified and self-controlled and uh, let's see here, sound in faith, love, steadfastness, sober-minded. We see displayed maturity in a man who's been um, uh, cultivating that maturity for his younger manhood years. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, how exactly do we do that? So if you would stand to your feet for the reading of God's word, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 8. So Titus 2, 6 through 8. This is the very word of God. 
Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This is the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much uh, for your word. That is our standard of truth in a crooked and perverse generation, which is really a true tagline for every generation. Man doesn't get beyond ourselves apart from revelation from God. And so, Lord, we want to rely on your standard and not our own for what it means to be uh, godly and mature as a man. And Lord, this word for the younger men I know is oftentimes hard to hear because I'm one of them and pride and a million reasons and excuses and justifications boil up to the surface. And at the end of the day, Lord, I pray that we would be made soft to hear your word and respond um, and repentance and brokenness and obedience. And uh, Lord, my heart is for our body of young men to be growing into godly, mature, older men. And so we need your spirit to help us with that. I pray that as I speak, uh, you just remove me here, that they would hear directly from you, that I would decrease. Lord Jesus, you must increase. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so talking about uh, maturity again, I talked about it's not just gaining knowledge or understanding. That alone doesn't make us mature. It's a deeper understanding or gaining understanding coupled with practice of obedience, coupled with time, okay? And so the young men are going to get a word here. The, the, the women got 11 characteristics of godly womanhood. The older men got six, and the younger men get one, okay? It says young men, and, and that, there's a reason for that, fellas, that's all we need, okay? We have not yet perfected this one. It says, urge the younger men. This is Paul talking to Titus about how to exhort. You hear that word urge, an urgency. Urge the young men to be self-controlled, period, all right? I think that probably would have gotten, in the wisdom of God, self-control would have been lost in a laundry list had there been one. And so we don't get one. We get young men, here's your problem, here's your struggle, and, uh, and this is pretty much true of every, uh, uh, in every culture across the world of all time, that young men will struggle with the uh, raging of their flesh in various areas and context, and again, context of home and, and work and husband and father and worker and steward, and in your personal life as a follower of, of Christ, self-control is gonna be the issue. Another word for that is discipline. It's reigning in your flesh. It's having your flesh get in line with what your mind knows to be true. And young men, there's just virtually no such thing as a young man who's arrived yet. And so young men, uh, Titus, urge them in their season, they're going to have to be self-controlled. That means knowing how to governor your flesh in these areas so that it's not let loose and wreaks havoc on your own life and those around you. Okay, young men, be self-controlled. Uh, let me mention this, uh, the idea is that young men are quickly becoming what they will one day be. Young men are becoming who we are going to be. You cannot control the speed of maturity. Remember that peace time? You can't control the speed, but you can control the assurance of it. This is the wisdom of God in this one verse, that uh, uh, we can't magically speed up uh, our becoming mature in Christ. Um, uh, we, we just can't control the, the, the speed. But what we can do is kind of uh, know that there's a guarantee that if we live a certain way in these days, that over the passage of time, that it will produce maturity in our hearts and in our thinking and in our lives. There'll be fruit to that. And so the way we must live is in a way that is self-controlled. 
Okay, and by the way, I'm going to say this now, and it'll, it'll be, it'll, I will speak of it throughout my time preaching this morning, is self-control is not merely me white-knuckling it through obedience to God's word. I will, will just, there'll, there'll be too much, there'll be more failure than is necessary in that model. Uh, self-control discipline is going to start with our affections continually being stirred for Christ. The gospel continually being reoriented as central in my life that produces in me a response God's love for me in Christ and the revelation of that love produces in me a desire to love him in return, uh, respond to his love in service and in obedience. And as a grateful ambassador, when love becomes our motivation, discipline becomes our joy, right? And obedience becomes a, a great desire. I, I got delight in obedience. And I'm not always obedient. I do the things I don't want to be and don't want to do and don't do the things I do do. As Paul says in Romans 7, that's true of me still. But my delights in obedience because of my love for the Lord, because of his love first for me. Okay, so understand this isn't just, I'm going to do what I ought to do because I'm supposed to. This is a deep desire to be like Jesus in response to what he has done. The gospel produces in us that hope for what we will be, what he is making us, that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. And it produces in us an assurance that it'll happen. It's going to be on his power and not mine. So really this whole self-control is the idea of surrendering and living a spirit-filled life. So who's in control at this point? It's the spirit of God alive in me. It's, it's a putting to death the flesh that the spirit's aliveness in me may control me. Okay, so it's really a, a governing of the flesh and being alive in the spirit. It's not me doing that apart from the spirit. Okay, so... Um, Here's the thing, uh, I've been studying a, uh, doing a study right now with uh, some young men in our church called Thoughts for Young Men, love it, by a uh, Puritan writer named J.C. Ryle. Really love uh, his writing and his insights uh, from the 19th century and uh, not much has changed in uh, the, the, the young men issues from when he's writing till today, it's still very relevant, even written in kind of the old English. And um, uh, he's been uh, talking in our, in our reading presently about how important that, that habits are, that men are, whether they realize it or not, becoming right now who they're going to be. And so he writes this, got a quote for you on the screen. Be not deceived, this is written to young men, think not you can at will serve lusts and pleasures in your beginning, and then go and serve God with ease at your latter end. It is a mockery to deal with God and your souls in such fashion. It's an awful mockery to think you can give the flower of your strength to the world and the devil who's the prince of this world, and then put off the king of kings with the scraps and leaving of your heart. Now why is this? Well, look at this. Habits are like stones rolling downhill. The further they roll, the faster and more ungovernable is their course. Habits like trees are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it is a sapling. A hundred men cannot root it up when it's a full-grown tree. It's true. Largely what I want to speak to you today for young men, the idea of being self-controlled, is creating certain practices in your life, ending certain practices, creating certain practices that become habitual, that will ultimately shape your character into godly maturity as the years roll on. All right, I want to give you some idea of how to do this in each of the, uh, well, in each of the categories. We'll cover a few of them today. Next week's will pretty explicitly be about uh, the work environment and as workers, and really we'll have application, of course, for men and women. Um, and so today I want to talk uh, in the context of marriage, in the context of um, uh, being a father, and in the context of singleness. Uh, what, do, what does this application of self-control look like? So let's talk about marriage for a moment. I mentioned this last week, and uh, I want you to hear, I don't want to sum it up like I did last week, I want you to hear the weight of these words. 
when Paul, talking to the church in Ephesus, talks about what a husband's uh, responsibility is in marriage. Okay, listen to this. These words are heavy. Here we go. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, now he's going to quote Genesis right here, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, so what Paul has written here is that, man, that our standard, young men, our standard is to love our wives as Christ loved the church and loves the church. And uh, I know that the first thought is, what, that, that's impossible. And uh, while there's some truth to that, uh, that, we're not to diminish the standard so that we make it a hurdle we can clear. We're supposed to realize the standard is impossible in and of ourselves and forces our dependence on Christ forces us to know the weakness of our flesh, to live in acknowledgement of that, in repentance of it, in active trust and faith and participation with the Holy Spirit towards maturity, to keep striving towards the standard that we are given. Why? Well, it says that this is how Christ loves the church. A man's going to leave his uh, mom and dad, be united to his wife. The two become one flesh. This is Genesis. What am I talking about? This is a mystery, but this is a display. This is an illustration to a lost world of the love of Christ for the church. So the world's meant to look at the way you husbands love your wives. And they're supposed to know what the love of Christ for his bride, the church, looks like. Uh, so, so I get that they're gonna get a somehow diminished look. They're not gonna get a, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be a perfect representative. But if I care about their right understanding of Christ and his love in the gospel, then that's my motivation to strive to love my wife better today than yesterday and better tomorrow than today. Better meaning more like Christ loves me. There's a deep motivation. I want the world to know the love of Christ. Not merely my wife to be satisfied in my love or through my love in the love of Christ. Okay? There's something deeper than that. The word of God may not be reviled because of me. That's our motivation, the gospel. Well, how does Christ love the church? I, I, I say these things a lot of times in marriage counseling, even sometimes in the homily when I'm giving a a, uh, a wedding or officiating a wedding. Uh, let me pull out a few things that I think that we can, I just want us to at least meditate on for a few moments this morning, husbands, uh, that Christ uh, meets the needs of his bride. Now, what you think about that with me, that's not just the physical needs. So kind of one of the cultural myths is that manhood entails uh, you uh, providing for your wife and a family, like putting a roof over her head, putting food on the table. Well, certainly that's true. But the mistake we make is to, to act like that's wholly true or that's all there is. Because by the way, men kind of you know, wired to hunt and gather, wired to go out and, and kill and eat or wired to go and work, whatever, however you wanna say that, men would like that to be it. Can I just put food on the table and get a pat on the back and it be good to go? The harder part is when we gotta delve into emotions and feelings and be patient and learn to be listeners and learn to connect at an emotional heart level. By the way, ladies, 
I know we're all failing, okay? So let me, let me just acknowledge that. And, if, and if, your, if your identity comes from your ability for us to, to reflect Christ to you perfectly here, you're gonna be a miserable woman. Okay, so you've got to be rooted in Christ. Uh, I can't be my wife's functional savior. I hope I can be more like him uh, in each season of my life uh, as I learn to be controlled by the spirit and not my flesh. But she's gotta be rooted in him, identity in him, the one who perfectly connects with her and her intimacy in him is what ultimately satisfies her soul. I'm to bring great joy in my desperate attempts to be like him uh, to her daily life. But we gotta be willing to go further than physical provision. Christ provides for his church on every level, physically, yes, but emotionally, certainly spiritually. Did you hear this? Sanctifying her with the word. So husbands are meant to be thinking about our wife's well-being, not merely physical, her emotional health. How is your wife's emotional health? If the answer is, I got no idea, can't figure this woman out, okay, then there, then there, there is some, some uh, there's a disconnect there and in, in, in that you are meant to be a student of this. Hopefully you're learning and discovering something about her along the way and how to love her as Christ loved the church. How is her spiritual health? How are you somehow watering her soul with the word of God and principles from the word of God? In the example you said, in the speech that you give, in the acts that you do, uh, is she being sanctified through God's word, through the embodiment of God's word in your life? I, I know this stuff's really humbling. This is a hard sermon to preach, all right? I got one finger going that way, I got three coming back, trust me. All right, this has been convicting all week long and it still is even as I say it now. I just wanna acknowledge again that I, that I, that I um, we just, we, we, won't, we won't arrive on this one, but boy, we wanna grow towards maturity in response to the gospel. Uh, this, this is, marriage is one of the most sanctifying tools ever. You'll either have a horrible marriage or you'll become more like Christ. That's it, it's gonna be one of those two live in misery or become more like Jesus. What a great gift. I don't wanna live in misery. I don't wanna have a bad marriage. And so in order to have a great marriage, which is what God intends for you, husbands, I want you to hear that. No matter how bad it is, God has intended and designed for you to experience something incredibly fruitful and joyous and life-giving in your marriage. And to have it, you'll get the double blessing of becoming more like him, because you can't have it without that. Beautiful tool God uses in our lives to sanctify us. So he provides for our needs. We're meant to do that. Uh, secondly, Jesus uh, forgives us when we sin. How about that? Now, it's, it's not a kind of like partial forgiveness where we acknowledge our wife's fault, especially if she's kind enough to admit it uh, or, or bring it forth and, and he'll hear what we say about some way we've been offended. It's not a head nod and then a holding on to a grudge. It's not the slow building of bitterness and resentment over time that finally comes to a head and we think gives us the right to live in any way or speak in any way or do anything we wanna do in response to how poorly she's loved me over time. Think about the way Jesus loved us. Praise God, he doesn't love us like that, right? And by the way, I never even picture that to be the way Jesus loves me. I know that's inherently not true. I know that as offensive as my behavior or posture or uh, you know, actions may be as sinful. In my, my darkest moments on my darkest days, I still have this picture of the empathy of Christ almost weeping for me in the ignorance and hard-heartedness of my sin, knowing the consequences I'll have to bear and wanting to love me through those and be with me in those and show me there's a better way in trusting in him and not my flesh. But that's the way I see him, this compassionate shepherd, even through the greatest trials of my life that I bring on myself. And yet that's not the way that I forgive and love my wife. Um, one way I know this is because I don't have to look any further than my own marriage, okay? So I'm not gonna throw anybody else under the bus. I know I hold on to things. 
I know something will come up from a few years ago and I'll bring it up and I'll be like, okay, obviously I had not forgiven her for that. Because it's still wrestling around in there, producing something toxic that, that comes out in the way I think or the sarcastic tone or whatever it is. That's not forgiveness. Um, but I also see it constantly when I'm doing marriage counseling. The couple will talk and, and they, they'll, they'll start with forgiving each other, saying they have, but then the counseling will go on and it's, uh, what we're really talking about is that which just happened yesterday, last week, last month, last year, and throughout their marriage that they're holding on to. All right, is, is justification for living the way that they want to live or acting the way that they want to act. And so the gospel's meant to break those strongholds of needing to be right. Of, of, it, we're meant to realize that in light of how Christ has forgiven us, east is from the west, and that he can't love us any more or more thoroughly in the midst of our darkest days in sin, and there's no greater love we'll experience tomorrow if somehow we clean that act up, that we have all of him in this compassionate, understanding way that that's the standard, that's how we're to love our wives. So when we're hurt, we don't uh, just stuff it, no, we share. And maybe sharing brings an acknowledgement that it's, it's our uh, pride that's been hurt and actually not something she's done. Maybe it is something she said, something she's done. We share it gently, loving, we give her an opportunity to uh, confess that and ask forgiveness. And then we forgive freely the way we have first been forgiven. And God produces great fruit. Boy, so many marriages are healed when we begin to acknowledge the way we've offended each other and ask and offer true forgiveness. Not only that, uh, Jesus pursues us for a lifetime. Um, There's not a woman in here that had the idea at the altar when she shared her vows with her husband and heard his that thought or had the idea that that was the end of his pursuit of her. That now we would go through the ho-hum act of being married with all the entanglements that that brings and survive when it's tough. No woman dreams of that. She has the idea that this man who has pursued her to the point of marriage will continue to pursue her until death do us part. Again, what about Jesus? I'm so thankful that he uh, didn't pursue me to the point of salvation and then say, all right, go get him going to work on somebody else. That even when my heart is prone to wander to pastures that I think are greener, and of course they never are, I've got a good shepherd who knows when one is away from the flock and comes after me. That he's with me in the midst of my ignorance, uh, chastening me towards repentance, leading me lovingly back to the fold. That he never leaves me nor forsakes me. That there's a constant, I feel like the Lord Jesus is constantly pursuing my heart. Never quits. And his love just gets more beautiful in every season as I'm awakened to it. It's the way we're meant to love our wives. A pursuit, I, I, I'm about to give some application to these things, but let me just stop and say right here, I, I wonder if there's some men in this room, I wonder it because I know it's true, that haven't put much, have not been putting much focus on pursuing your wife's heart in the here and now. Certainly not like you used to. Certainly not like you had to when you were trying to uh, win her in the first place. But this is the standard by which young men are meant to implement self-control, oriented in the gospel, governor of the spirit over the flesh, illustrate the love of Christ for his church. Falling short again and again and again, but never ceasing to strive. Let me give you one more. Jesus loves his wife, uh, his bride, unconditionally and sacrificially. That's pretty obvious with the big wooden cross behind me on the stage, that he loved her unto death. Certainly not because his bride earned that love, deserves that love. It's not a conditional. 
sacrificially and unconditionally. Uh, that uh, I'll tell you a goal of mine, I fail at this probably more days than not, but I want my wife to go to bed at night knowing that I love her, not because I said it that day or said it enough times that pounded it in her head. I want her to go to bed knowing that I love her because she saw it demonstrated in the sacrificing of my life for her that day. That I was thinking about her needs without her having to tell me what they were. That I was making space for her to be emotionally and spiritually and physically renewed without her getting to a point of exhaustion uh, or being deprived in a certain area. That I'm figuring out how to water and nurture and help her to flourish without her even uh, uh, asking or requiring that of me. That it's thinking of her interest above my own. I want her to go to bed knowing that he loves me because there was sacrifice for my sake. Um, Something I've realized is true in the last seven years, especially in in marriage counseling, is that husbands and wives come and they share, and obviously uh, both spouses are always at fault. There's there's not been yet such a thing as a marriage that's broken and unhealthy uh, where where it didn't take two to tango, okay? there's, There's always both and at fault. There's two sinners trying to figure this thing out. But I'll, I've, just, I've noticed something, that, that there's always a wife that's, that's not neutral, okay? She's not in a neutral place in that marriage. She's not just kind of uh, gliding along um, in her emotional health. There's, there's always a woman who one of two things is happening. She is either uh, being uh, nourished or neglected. Because if she's not being nourished, she is being neglected. She's not being neglected, she is being nourished. So, so I always have got before me a woman who is either, because she's being nourished, she's flourishing, she's coming, she's coming alive, she's becoming more aware of who she is and who she was created to be and what her gifts are and what her purpose is. And it's like little buds or little blossoms on a plant that are beginning to produce fruit in season. And she, it's like she's just being watered and she's growing and she's flourishing and she's being nourished. That's happening or it's not, and if it's not, it's not that she's just uh, uh, living in some, some kind of good place waiting to be in a better, no, if it's not, there's neglect. And what's happening, like a plant being neglected, is that it's slowly withering. She's slowly becoming a shell of who she once was. It might sound kind of harsh, I've just noticed, it's true. I had a guy say the hardest thing that I've ever had a guy say to me in, uh, in, in way of counsel, Catherine and I in our second year marriage, particularly bumpy year for us. Um, it was, I'm sharing a lot of what I had to sh- learn the hard way in my own marriage. I thought I was doing a pretty good job. I thought I was a pretty good husband. I'd have given myself, you know, you know maybe like an eight out of 10 or something um, uh, in my false humility of not wanting to grade myself too highly, but I thought I was doing well. And yet, um, we got to this point where Kath and I weren't communicating well. I, you know, I figured she just doesn't understand me, but she'll get there. And, um, and, and so, but, but it came to a head where she recommended, you know, maybe we could see somebody to help us, a counselor. And we both knew a guy who was familiar with our relationship, and he was an associate pastor at a church in town, very well known for his marriage counseling. So we went and saw him, and I thought, this will be great. You know, he'll give me a few tidbits, and he'll kind of go to work on Catherine, and I think he can get us back on the same page. And uh, boy... I, uh, I was in for a rude awakening, and I'm, I'm thankful for this man's um, uh, godly rebuke in my life. I'm thankful for his willingness to tell the truth, even though I, I, he probably thought I'd leave there hating him forever. But these words have been, were prophetic then in my marriage, and they've helped me to this day. 
uh, Catherine began to share. She's sweet. She was kind of sharing, you know, some of what she was feeling. I, I kind of went first and, and probably threw her under the bus. And then she went, and she, she just kind of began to cry and was trying to share these frustrations she's having. And, and, she, and she recognizes she's not meeting my needs, and she feels a lot of a, uh, shame in that. And, 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 you know, she, and she's just kind of uh, weeping there on the couch, and I hate that this is kind of going like it is. And, and uh, I thought, boy, he's really going to hopefully give her some wisdom, help her out. And he just turned to me and he said, hey, man, I, I want you to just kind of look at her with me. And there's my sweet bride of a year and a half. And uh, she's just kind of curled up on the couch, just uh, Kleenexes in both hands, just spent, just tired, just not knowing which way to go, emotionally hurting and sad and crying. And uh, something kind of began to break a little bit in my heart. Uh, still wanted to defend myself, explain why she shouldn't really feel the way she, sh- she feels. Uh, and he said, man, I just want you to know, I've, I've known you too. I've known you too since, you know, you were here in the premarital. <laughs> and I saw the vivacious, the love, the pursuit. I saw her come out. He said, let me, let me just tell you what I want you to first be able to acknowledge. If you can't acknowledge this, we're not going to get any work in. And he said, from where she was then to where she is now. What do you think, man? You think, is she thriving and flourishing and growing? Or is she slowly dying and before I was able to give him any excuse or any defense or any justification of which I had plenty he made me answer the question I said well I guess I'd have to say slowly dying he said well let me just stop you there and the rest of our session which was the whole thing was spent on him explaining to me that unless I'm willing to die to myself she will always be slowly dying until I'm interested in uh, loving her well and knowing how to nurture my wife and knowing how to sacrificially and unconditionally strive towards loving her as Christ loved the church, this is the best she'll ever do. A excuse-making, justifying, stubborn, prideful, and selfish husband who's got every excuse in the books for why he's not gonna love her like Christ loved the church. And I had to be convinced of the wrongness of that, the sinfulness of that, and the uh, destination of that before I was willing to own it and repent of it and try something new, which was less of me for the sake of Christ in my marriage. I'd be willing to bet there's a lot of marriages in this room. Um, it's reflected in how uh, many folks I get to see and try to help. But just we're human, human nature, marriage is tough. Uh, I would just ask the question, men, I know you, Rome wasn't built in the day, you guys didn't get here and it's not all your fault. But I would ask you, when you think about how Christ loves you, what could you do today to begin to love your wife more like Christ loves the church? Maybe the tone in which you speak to her, and maybe the lack of time that you give her or fully present with her. It may be resentment in your heart that you've let built up that, you, that she doesn't even know is built there, but you need to admit it, confess it, repent of it. Um but there's gonna have to be a governor on your flesh. The Holy Spirit filling you up, teaching you where the, where the uh, sickness is and you being willing to let him as the good physician pull that out and you admit it, you put it on the table and then you repent and you strive for something different. Uh, I told y'all last week that I'd tell you the secret of marriage, so I wanna fulfill my promise. Um, and this is something I've, learned by, uh, I've mentioned four of my heroes last week, and, uh, and I, I've watched them do this well, not perfectly, but really well. And I've explicitly asked Soup on various occasions, you know, what's the secret, man? 
like the way you speak to Miss Linda and the way that you treat her, the way, the way, that, you, man, the way that you look at her. Like, man, you, it's not fake. It's this authentic and deep abiding love, and you, you gladly sacrifice more and more of yourself. And it's like it's better than any teen infatuation I've ever seen, and it's so real, and it's 40 years in. What's the secret? And you know what he said? You got to keep at it. That's it. He said, you got to keep at this one. He goes, because you're going to fail a lot. And what a man will generally do if he fails is he'll get tired of trying. And he just goes back to Adam in the flesh, and he just gets passive. And he gets okay with survival mode, which is never what God intended for marriage. He says, in this one, you got to keep at it. Every time you fail, which is going to be a lot, he said, you just got to be willing to admit it. Failed here. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I'm going to repent. I'm going to strive for Christ's likeness. I'm keeping at it. I'm going another round. He said, if you'll keep surrendering, keep admitting failure, keep repenting of sin, and keep at it, God will cultivate what I got with Miss Linda and then some. He said, it keeps getting better and better. You know what that, you know what that really is? It's him getting more and more mature. It's that discipline of self-control becoming a habit of Christ-likeness in his marriage. Young men, be self-controlled. Don't put this off. Don't ignore it. Put some stones rolling down some hills in your marriage that are going to produce joyful companionship for the glory of Christ. Well, let me give you, let me take one more context. Let me talk about um, as a parent. Um, Actually, there's so much in in these areas, but uh, let me talk about being a dad. Being a dad is really hard, too. (laughs) Uh, you know, the, the scripture says that fathers, Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, raise your children in the training and instruction of the Lord. So, so listen to that. Fathers, there's a specific admonition to daddies that you're to lead on, that you're, you're to raise them, not alone, of course not, good gracious, but you are to be an active leader. Raise your children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Boy, I've talked to so many dads. Their hearts are to do this. Like, I I wish I could do that. I want to do that. I got no clue how to do that. Most dads really yearn for that. Just no clue. Men never gravitate towards what they feel incompetent to do. Y'all ever notice that? We just don't gravitate towards areas of incompetence. And uh, raising our children in the training and instruction of the Lord, even with a seminary degree, it's it's, it's tough, man. You kind of feel like, I don't know how to do this. Okay, uh, let, let me just give you a few things uh, this morning that I, I uh, as a body, I think we can do that might be helpful. First, let me, uh, the most important thing you can do to raise that child in the training instruction, the most important thing you can do is um, have an authentic walk with Christ yourself. Not merely church going, you know, because my wife wants me to, or trying to live a little bit better life, you know, be, you know get you know, a few loose ends together and try to be more... It is to have an authentic uh, walk with Christ. Here's what I mean by that. Like, like your kids know the truth about you. They know if there's idolatry in your life, if there's a greater love than Christ, if there's a God other than Jesus, they know it. Can I just tell you that? As soon as they're about six, seven years old, they know it. Because you, you can't hide yourself from them. If you, you know, if you give me about an hour, or geez, geez, I don't need an hour, if you give me 10 minutes with your 10-year-old, 
I will be able to tell you what your greatest idols are, because they know. So the most important thing you can do to raise him in the training stress Lord is be honest that you know too, that you know that there's a sincere love for Jesus that's played out in your desire to love your wife, and your desire to share the gospel with them, and your desire to live a life that's of integrity in the different various contexts that God's given you. And yet you recognize that if you were to proclaim your righteousness, you'd be a hypocrite. They need to know that you know that you fall short. They need to know that you know you're a sinner. Because here's what, they, they gotta be able to know stuff like, I got five boys, my boys are, are 12 down to one and a half. They gotta be able to have me, hear me say things to them like, guys, I didn't do a good job loving your mom well today. They, they already know that, they were there. They could sense it and feel it even if they didn't hear anything. And I say, you know what? The scripture calls me to love her like Christ loves the church. Guys, I'm gonna need y'all to pray for me on this. I can't do that perfectly, but I'm not even doing it well right now. I'm struggling. I've, my selfish tendencies are coming up, my pride, I've been hurt. And you know what I gotta remember, boys, that Christ doesn't love me conditionally based on any of those things. And fellas, he's the only one that can do this perfectly. Can you believe he's loved us to the point of death, even death on a cross? He is a hero. And I want to be more like him. He's my hero. And guys, today I stubbed my toe, or maybe even worse than that. I'm going to be going downstairs and going to be asking your mom for forgiveness. Could you pray with me that she'd have a soft heart? I'm going, to, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to seek to do better tomorrow. Guys, this is one of the most important ways I'll honor our Lord and Savior. Okay, that would just be, that's already true. So they need to know, they need to see an authentic walk with Jesus before them. You do that. In all the areas of your life, you be honest, you let them in. They already see it all. You explain, you give rise. It's going to be sanctifying you. It's going to be raising them in the training and instruction of the Lord. They're going to see what a gospel-centered life looks like. A couple of ways to put flesh on that further. When my alarm goes off in the morning, um, sometimes I feel good. Sometimes I feel groggy and tired and, and bad. And uh, I have a thought that goes through my mind about the first thing I think every morning when it's time to get up, is that I, I, had, I don't even know where this came into me, probably some old sports slogan from somewhere, but, but, uh, but I think a thought that goes on my head is I want to win the day. Win the day. Win the day gets me out of bed in the morning when I don't feel like it. And win the day is going to be, it's going to be, it's going to happen or not by 8 a.m. Doesn't mean there are other ways I could probably royally screw up the day, but by 8 a.m. I'm going to win the day or not. And what that means is I want to have a time of being still before the Lord, a time where I sit and I meditate upon the Word of God and I remember that he's God that I'm not, that I need his help today. It's a, it's a time of recognizing my neediness before the Lord and asking his spirit to be alive in me, to quicken to repentance the, the things that are uh, evil in me and the lingering effects of the flesh and to give me a heightened sense of uh, who he is and how I might display his glory, starting with my home when those boys come downstairs. And so starts there, when they come downstairs, what I wanna do, help them get ready for school, help breakfast uh, happen or get on the table or make sure they're eating it. And then when we're on the table, I wanna want read God's word. We've been through various Bibles, their ages keep changing and there's different seasons and so we mix it up. We've got a lot of different devotionals we use. We just did one on the names of God that was great. Uh, we've used the Jesus Storybook Bible and now we're using um, uh, the Story of God Bible. But read a little bit. By, 740, I want to be reading God's word for about 10 minutes. Deuteronomy 6 says you want to, uh, uh, when you rise up and when you go to bed, you want to be um, talking about the things of God. So we, just, we put some scripture. By the way, let me say, I, I, doing this every day is not going to get my kids saved. 
I wish it were that easy. It's not. It's not. I can't save them. Salvation's of the Lord. Uh, but I want to do what I can. It's my great privilege to deposit the word of God and the gospel on their hearts as much as I can. Old Jewish proverb, you put the word on their heart, and when their heart breaks, God will put it in. The world's going to break their heart. Life's going to be tragic and tough. There'll be plenty of time for heartbreak, things that I can't spare them from. But I want the word to fall in and help them know how to navigate the sadness and the tragedy and loss of life. So ha- start a spiritual conversation. L- and boy, that, you won't believe what that will help you do during the day. And then here's the deal. You want to be able to listen to your children, not merely at the breakfast table, throughout the day. I have trouble with this. I have a feeling I'm not alone. I don't mean listen while you're on your phone or watching a game and yet, yeah, yeah, what was that? Oh man, that's great. What I mean is listen, we had great teaching on this this week for our small group leaders on Wednesday night. I mean listen with the goal of connection. I mean you sit down and you listen to what's going on here. You ask questions, you listen not for the sake of knowing what's wrong in their lives that you can quickly fix, that they somehow see you as their functional savior. That's a, that's a greater loss than it is a good, trust me. We want them to share so that we know more about them, who they are, where they are, how to pray for them, and to be able to connect with them and to know that I'm in this with you right where we are, even though I can't fix you, but I know the one who can. I'm going to keep encouraging you to take that to him, and I'm going to be there with you while you do. Some of you say, my kid won't talk to me. That won't happen. Can I challenge you on that? I don't think that's, I, I don't think that's true. I think if you think your kid won't talk to you, is because your kid does not perceive that you want to hear. That kid has not discerned a listening posture from your heart. And again, they always know. Um, and by the way, the reason you don't listen if you don't, if that's a, is probably because of some, some other things that have declared uh, ownership of that margin in your life that you've pledged allegiance to and, th- and they've been squeezed to the periphery. And you gotta figure out what that is. And then young men, be self-controlled. You don't wanna swing and miss here. Um, one last thing I'll give you. At the end of your day, again, Deuteronomy 6, bookending this day with the Lord's word, I would encourage you to uh, just get on your knees right next to them or next to their bed and, uh, and pray over them. That's one thing to know their heart, be able to pray for them throughout the day, that's critical and it's exciting seeing how God, trusting God to do for them what you can't do. But pray over them with that last thing you do each night. 7,000 days, from the time they're born until they go off to God, 7,000 times. Pray relevant prayers. I'd encourage not the robotic, mechanical prayer. I'd encourage just pray like you're an authentic Christ follower. Just pray. Pray before them. Pray for them. Advocate for them on the Lord's behalf. Go to the throne room of grace on their behalf and pray the gospel over them again and again and again. Now these are just, these are lifestyle things. Listening, uh, spending time with Jesus, confessing sin, praying over them. Men, this is how we raise our children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Don't need a seminary education to do that. But you do need discipline. You do need self-control. And you do need a life surrendered to the Spirit so that, that, self-control, so that you have the, the empowerment to live that self-controlled life, that your body's in line with your mind and you're doing what you want to do. And it brings the Lord incredible glory. And it brings so much life to your children and to your wife. Let me give you one more. Our time is short. Um, I, need to, I need to start writing shorter sermons. 
so that I'm not so frustrated at the end of each sermon when I've said half of what I plan to say. Um, Single guys, and and so this is true for all of us, but I wanted to specifically highlight one thing. Single guys, uh, everything you've heard me say so far, and by the way, God may have given you a gift. You may have a gift of singleness. I want to keep acknowledging that. That's not, there's nothing JV about that. That will be for a few. And then you get to utilize what I'm talking about missionally in the context of your uh, neighborhood and your community and your church body and your workplace and to the ends of the earth. So praise be to God. But there are certain principles that you've got to grab from what we're saying now that if you're married or have children, just begin in the home and still are played out in those arenas. And the two things I would say that uh, strike me from everything we've said so far are that you have got to learn to die to yourself and be a servant leader. So which those go hand in hand. I've just realized I can't be a good husband and I can't be a good father. I can't honor God in the way I want to. I can't make much of Christ in the way I want to. I can't respond to the gospel in the way I want to unless I'm willing to have less of me and more of Christ and unless I'm willing to lead through service. Well, even if you're single in here, you're not, th- those, are, uh, those are characteristics you can be cultivating right now. How do I begin to die to myself uh, in some habits? What are some habits in my life that need to go? What are some that I can begin that stir my affections for Christ? What, what habit can I stop? What habit can I start to become a servant leader in the context I am right now, in my work, in, uh, in my, where I live with roommates, whatever it may be? How can I become a servant leader through my service in this church? Don't wait until you're a father or a husband and say, okay, let me, let me do that now. You'll be like me on that couch getting rebuked by a really godly man if God is merciful in your life. Uh, you can begin to love your wife now. This may be cliche, maybe you've heard I'm still going to say it. By the way, you treat the opposite sex today. I didn't always do this well. I wish I had. I wish I could have a, a mulligan on this. But in the way you uh, think about the opposite sex and the way you talk with them, and the way you treat them in any kind of relationship, there's absolutely a way that you can have self-control, gospel-centered self-control that, le- that, that produces a certain fruit in your life that will be a gift to your wife one day should you get married. Same thing as a father. Um, you got one chance, one season to be single. If God intends for you to be married, you got one season to, to sow faithfully that you will reap for a lifetime in marriage and in uh, parenting. So begin to push some stones down the hill that will roll and pick up speed in uh, uh, personal purity and fidelity in the area of opposite sex relationships. Get an accountability partner. Say, here's who I want to become. So here's what I'm going to do today. And I can't do it apart from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to need communion. I'm going to need help. And acknowledge it out loud. And begin creating that habit. Begin creating that lane to run in. Okay, um, that's all I'm going to say today. Uh, let me end with this thought. Um, I mentioned those men last week, uh, four men that are, that are heroes of mine. Uh, they did not turn 60 and say, all right, it's time for me to be a godly man. That's impossible. But wherever you are on your journey today, and most especially explicitly for the young men, here's what they did well in made them ultimately heroes of mine and men that have marked and indelibly shaped my life, legacy, and future, and even this church when that was only a glimpse in God's eye. Here's what they did. When they were young men, somewhere along the way, they uh, acknowledged the uh, sin in their life, and they were willing 
to surrender to the Spirit and apply self-control, Spirit-led self-control, with some God-honoring, life-giving, soul-renewing practices. And as they practiced those things, they became habits. And those habits, over time, forged in them a godly maturity that became life-giving for me and for our church and for my family. And by their willingness to be self-controlled, they ultimately shaped and are shaping the next generation for Christ. Paul ends with an admonition specifically to Titus. He says, Titus, you show yourself to be a model of good works. That's what we need, a model. The greatest thing I can be for you, and and, uh, I wish I could be it better, it would be a model. I won't be a model of righteousness. I hope to be a model of striving and keeping at it. He said, you be a model and you be a man of integrity. Let what you say match your life. And dignity, you're serious about the things that are worth being serious about. And here's what happens if you'll do it. Then an opponent that says something against you would be ashamed of him or herself. And you know what it says? Then nothing evil can be said about us. And I said it last week. Um, Those men do such honor to the name of Jesus. And they do honor to, we're the body of Christ to us by the way they live their lives. That begins today. Young men, be self-controlled. Father, thank you for uh, the urging, the admonition of, of the text. Paul knew what it was to be a young man. And he was carried along by your Holy Spirit as they gave this to Titus and said, Titus, you tell them that it's gonna, their, their life will be spent or it will be invested based on this principle. Can they be self-controlled? Lord, we cannot do that apart from your Holy Spirit. Let us continue to surrender, to repent quickly, to admit our failings and our shortcomings, and to trust you to produce more of your beloved Son in and through us, that we may become gray in the head one day, but not merely gray. With it, we would become godly in our character. And that you would show a lost world the beauty of the gospel, the richness of the gospel, the delight of the gospel, and our delight in you. Let it be so of Harvest Church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.